So we are here during Memorial Day weekend. And uh, of course, Memorial Day is a holiday that is to commemorate the those that lost their life during service to our nation during times of war. So obviously that's a solemn um, holiday. And if we take time to reflect on that, that causes us to, uh, you know, think about those sacrifices. And uh, we don't always spend the time thinking about those things and um, just kind of take it as a, as a holiday to enjoy a long weekend. And I think there's nothing wrong with enjoying the long weekend and the freedoms that we have because of those that have gone before us and have sacrificed for those freedoms. So it's okay to do both, to think and remember, <laughs> but also to enjoy ourselves. Then, of course, this week, on top of everything, we had a terrible tragedy down in Texas. And, uh, young children and their teachers lost their life, not in service to their country, but in senseless uh, tragedy. And all of that causes me to be in a very solemn mood this morning uh, and reflect on the fact that this world is filled with a whole lot of sad things. And I don't have to convince anybody in the room of that fact. Uh, we know that. Um, and uh, whether it's those that go off to fight and experience the tragedies that are a result of war or senseless violence at home, the world is a chaotic place. And so we're here in church this morning and we get to open God's word and uh, God's word speaks directly to how we can address that chaos that is a regular part of our reality. And the way we address it as God's people is through praying for God's kingdom. So before we look at Colossians 1 this morning, I'd like to take a moment to pray as we open God's word together. So let's pray. So our Father, you are the almighty one, the awesome God that we sing of, the one we worship and praise. You're the one who gave us your son. You're the one who gives us your spirit to guide us into all truth. Your son taught us to pray that your kingdom would come. And your word speaks of the, the attributes of your kingdom where your rule is evident among your people. And God, we seek to see your kingdom evidenced among us and in the world, but it often is not the case. And so uh, we ask that you would help us this morning as we open your word to reflect on your kingdom, our part in it, and how we can pray its reality in our midst. Guide us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul was addressing a situation 
in a church in the city called Colossae that was a church uh, that he had never been to. And in this uh, church, they were dealing with uh, turmoil on, around spiritual matters. There were teachers that were teaching things that Paul felt shouldn't be taught. And uh, he wrote this letter to address that false teaching by pre pre uh, presenting the true teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and how uh, the church needed to turn from the false teaching that was there to well, the truth that was in Jesus. And in doing so, we, uh, if we as we read the whole letter, this letter to the church in Colossae, uh, we kinda, it's kind of like listening in, eavesdropping on one side of a telephone conversation, somebody talking to someone. We can kind of get a gist of what the other person is saying by the responses of the person we hear. And it's kind of that way in this letter. We kind of get some idea about what the false teaching was that was starting to circulate among God's people. It had something to do with uh, special spiritual knowledge that was communicated by these teachers and uh, was entered into by certain rituals. Uh, and uh, somewhere in there, there was this communication of spiritual uh, entities, angels and so forth that was communicated. So all kinds of stuff going on. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, no, don't be deceived by that stuff. Look to Jesus and, uh, and, and allow the light of the truth of the gospel to uh, help you to understand how to live. And Paul, at the time, was in prison. A lot of Paul's uh, time was spent in prison for being a faithful minister of Jesus. And so just think of this. Paul is writing these words, as he often did, probably with the, with the help of somebody, write, he, he would speak it and somebody would write it down. Um, and uh, he had people around him. Timothy was one of them. So imagine Paul in prison being taken care of by the believers that were attending to his needs there. But his little fellowship that he was uh, taking part in, just like our little fellowship here, was was small, but it was he was uh, uh, experiencing fellowship there and writing this letter to a church far away that was having trouble understanding how to think about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus because there were these competing voices to try to get their attention. And in that, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says these words in the beginning of Colossians 1, first couple verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So we could spend all morning right here, and I'm not going to, I'd like to, but we're not. But I will draw your attention to this 
salutation, this greeting that Paul gave at the beginning of all his letters to the churches. They included at least these two things, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So in our world that kind of feels like it's fallen, around, fallen apart around us from time to time and sometimes more than others and in a world of chaos, we don't know maybe how to think and there's these competing voices about how we address the chaos in the world. Uh, God's word to the church in Paul's day is the same word of God to the church in our day that we are to be in a world of chaos characterized by grace and peace. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to move on about that. But let's remember that as we move forward. And so in the midst of this kind of spiritual turmoil within the church, this misunderstanding of how to think about the truth in Jesus, as Paul addresses it, the way he starts is by prayer, as we think of our world and how to address the chaos. Let's take a lesson from Paul and start by addressing it through prayer. And we'll start reading in verse 3, how Paul prayed for the church, he said, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard and the true message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Let's stop there for a moment. When we read Paul's letters, there's a whole lot in these dense sentences that Paul uh, puts uh, before us through uh, the inspiration of the Spirit to, to consider and chew on. And there's so much there. We're going to look at a couple of themes here. Uh, at, but uh, um, as, as we kind of unpack that, unpack this, let's do it under the umbrella of this. In the, in, in the church, when there was turmoil and spiritual uh, uh, misunderstanding about the truth of Jesus, Paul started with prayer. And when he started his prayer, what did he start with? He started with thanksgiving. I think there might be a lesson in that for us because when things seem chaotic and don't know where to turn and feels like, what can we do? And we want to throw up our hands because uh, stuff just keeps happening over and over again and it, it just seems to get worse and worse and our impression is the world's just falling apart. What do we do? Paul started with prayer and he started his prayer with thanksgiving. Now that's not kind of putting your, his head in the sand and not addressing what's going on. There was a problem there and he's going to address it. Before he addressed it, 
you took a look at what God, who God was and what God was doing and what God had done and, and all the potential that was there. And he, uh, from that platform and that perspective, he found a lot to start with in thanksgiving. And so what does he say? We thank God because the gospel has reached you and has not only reached you, but it's spreading throughout the whole world. And uh, Paul's saying, I haven't even been there, but Epaphras, my buddy, has been there. And, and uh, God is doing a work. I am thankful for what God is doing in you. See, there's always something that we can give thanks for. It's not putting our head in the sand and pretending the problems don't exist. But if we just focus on the problem, just focus on how bad things are. We can, we can um, kind of begin to doubt that God is even able to do anything, right? And we might say, God, I, I don't understand what you're doing here. And God, shouldn't you be doing something here? And God, if you're so good, what? That's, that's how we can think. And those are normal ways to think in the face of severe tragedy. And God can handle our conflicted emotions over pain and suffering and turmoil and conflict. However, if we reflect on who God is and what he has done and give thanks for that, that creates a platform from which we can begin to pray and address the situation that's in front of us. That is the practice that Paul teaches us to pray with thanksgiving in the face of the difficulties of the world. But there in verse 4, so much here, there's something I want to draw our attention to. He thanked God for who he was and what he had done among this church. And what had he done? Verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. So let's break that down. The faith you have in Christ Jesus. So the belief that Jesus is who he said he he, he was the son of God, that he died, that he rose again, and that through him he gives us access to God, not by being good in and of ourselves, because we can never be good, good enough, but God forgives us through the sacrifice of Jesus, and through Jesus we have access to the Father. Faith in Christ Jesus. Central, right? The, the bedrock of the gospel, but what's this other part? and the love you have for all God's people. When we kind of look around at the problems that face us in, in the world and uh, we try to address it and try to make sense of what's going on, um, we, we can start to have all kinds of theories about what the best way is to address what's going on. And very often what our theories about how to address things 
have to do with ideas about who's to blame and how we can kind of attack those people that are to blame. And when we, we do that and we can get, come up with theories about who's you know, right and who's wrong, uh, and we can come up with this long list of reasons why they are bad because they believe certain things and we're good because we believe things, certain things. But uh, what is going on here, and again, we started with this umbrella that Paul's salutation and his blessing on the church in Colossae is that they would be characterized by grace and peace. Now we have this idea that it is also a characteristic of those who put their faith in Christ that they love one another. And as we go on and we expand this throughout Scripture, not just that we have love for God's people, but God so loved the world, the Bible tells us. We're to love the world. That love is characteristic of God's people. And so grace and peace manifesting itself in love when we put our faith in, in Christ, it starts to give us this idea that when we see turmoil in the world, it isn't so much that we need to come up with some theory about who we need to attack. We need to focus on the fact that God has accepted us in Christ, and because of that, we need to love one another. There's all kinds of uh, uh, talk these days about culture wars and and about you know different um, theories about how you know uh, there there are people to blame for all our ills and. Uh, all kinds of rhetoric starts coming up around the different problems of society. And it's unfortunate, just like in Paul's day, where this kind of skewed thinking about Jesus rose up in the church, so he had to address it by showing the truth of the gospel. So in our day, even though it's probably different ideas than what was being uh, uh propagated back then as false teaching. But in our day, we can get off track and think as, as the church and start thinking about all these theories about why the world is so bad and we're diverting our attention from the truth of Christ. And whether it's, you know, QAnon or, or our uh, um, critical race theory, if you've heard any of those, or abortion, or guns, or immigration, you've certainly heard of those. All of these ideas about what's going on, these are things that we can talk about and they're fine, but those aren't to characterize the church. What's to characterize the church? Grace and peace. Faith in Christ and love for one another as God's people we need to be characterized by the character of Jesus. And Jesus wasn't running around spouting uh, uh, all kinds of uh, culture war type ideas on how we need to bring down the bad people. No, he talked about how we need to love each other and forgive one another as God has forgiven 
us. And that's how the gospel spread in the first century. And that's how it will spread today if we don't allow ourselves to be diverted from the truth that's in Christ, faith in Christ and love for one another. Paul was thankful that had taken root in the church there in Colossae. And then he goes on and he continues to pray, having given thanks that the gospel had taken root and that they were loving one another and uh, that was happening throughout the whole world in verse 9. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have, you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're going to stop right there. Paul doesn't stop, though. He goes on like this for a few more chapters, but we're going to hunker down here and, again, just look at a few themes in this prayer. But let's recognize there, as it says in verse 13, this is prayer a prayer that the kingdom of the Son of God would overcome the dominion of darkness in the world. In the face of turmoil in the church and in a time when the church was persecuted in the world and in the time of great suffering uh, it, that was uh, evident in that day and certainly we can resonate with suffering in the world in our day, Paul prayed that God's kingdom would overcome the dominion of darkness and how does he pray that will take place well let's look at a couple of themes here in these verses so he's praying for God's people that what would happen verse 9 that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding through the spirit so again, as I mentioned earlier, we don't know exactly what the teaching was that was going on in the church that was Paul was concerned about, but we get the idea that it uh, um, had certain elements of uh, philosophical teaching of that day, and some of these, um, these words carry philosophical baggage in the ancient Greek world and at the, at the time there, the idea of fullness and of wisdom, uh, knowledge. These, these words were, um, were, were technical terms for uh, theories about the universe and, and, and about the spiritual realm that were contrary to what the true teaching of Jesus was about. And Paul is using those words and applying them to Jesus. So he's talking about being filled with the knowledge 
of God's will. However, false teachers may have understood that, the way Paul understood it was this. So God's will is something that is very important for us to understand in a world filled with chaos today, just as it was in that day. So I don't know what you think of when you think of God's will. Paul started this very letter back in verse 1 by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So in just a few short verses, he's talked about the will of God twice. It's very important to him, and it should be important for us to understand what it means to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You see, we often, I think, can speak for myself, and I know this has been my experience in the past, and I know it's the experience of many when I hear them talk about God's will, we, we think that there is this certain path, one path that God wants us to follow in terms of the day-to-day -day decisions of our lives. And we want to be careful not to make the wrong decision because we'll get outside of God's will. I don't know if you've ever heard God's will talked about in those terms. But that's really not what's being talked about here when it talks about God's will. Because certainly God is sovereign. That is, he's the king of the universe. He's in charge and he knows what's right and he knows the end from the beginning. And so he, he wants us to, to, to walk upon along paths of righteousness for sure. But when it talks about God's will, it's talking about really something else. So if, let me use an analogy to kind of explain this. So as a parent, so uh, a parent with, with a child, as a child grows up, a parent might talk about their will for the child. They may. My will for my child is that they do certain things. They may talk about that, but that kind of sounds a little overbearing. And uh, especially as that child grows to maturity in adulthood, if you talk about your will for an adult child, I don't know, that might kind of strike you as being overbearing and overly possessive. However, if you, if you say this, uh, you talk about your desire for your child. My desire for my child is, and as we think in those terms, we have a better sense of what is being talked about here in Colossians and, in fact, in the Bible when it talks about God's will. God's will is his desire for his children. In fact, same word in the Greek language, will, desire, it's the same word. And God desires what for his children? Well, it's the same kinds of things that parents desire for their children. So let's think through that analogy just a little bit. What would a parent desire for their child? Very often parents will say, well, I want them to be happy. I want them to grow up to be happy. That's a good desire, right? Who wants a kid to grow up to be sad? That's not a good thing. But 
let's unpack that a little bit because what if all a, a person had was happiness and everything handed to him on a silver platter? That's really not what's best. That doesn't call, make for happiness. Usually people should be able to uh, uh, be able to engage in meaningful activity. And so uh, a, a thoughtful parent might might say, I, my, my desire for my, my child is that they, they get to fulfill their capacity as adults. They get to be meaningful members of society. They get to uh, 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 find someone to love, perhaps have children. These are all uh, begin to fill out this idea of a good desire for a child, right? There's all these things that make for um, uh, a fulfilling life. And a good parent wants that child's life to be filled with those good things. That's what God's will is for his people, is that they would be filled with the knowledge, that is, the experiential wisdom to live life to its fullest underneath the guidance of God's principles for their lives. That's, that's, that's a pretty full life. Then it goes on in verse 10 and says that God's desire for his people to live and the experiential knowledge of, of, of uh, his goodness and that their life would be full of that. What's the result? Verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So again, just as in verse 4 we saw that having faith in Christ is not just a, a theoretical experience of checking off certain beliefs. Yeah, I believe in that, I believe in that, I believe in that. It results in verse 4, loving one another. So as Paul prays uh, for the church, that they would be full of the knowledge of God's good pleasure to live a life full of wisdom and understanding, that is exemplified in how we live our life, live a life worthy of the Lord. In the face of, of the, the knowledge of chaos and, and, and horrible things in the world, it's, it's easy for us to want to come up with theories about who's to blame and to, to push uh, uh, those ideas on other people and, and say how horrible they are. Well, there's plenty of things we can think about about what's wrong in the world. And it's, it's okay to think about and talk about that. But if we become known for just uh, talking about how bad everybody else is, we're not filled with grace and peace. We should instead be praying that God would cause his kingdom to be known in us so that we live a life that's worthy of the desire of God for us. What does that look like? Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power to his glorious might so that we may have, now we get to it, great endurance and patience and giving thanks to the Father. It's qualified us to share in the inheritance 
his holy people in the kingdom of light. Those are the characteristics of the kingdom. Let's, let's break them down. So bearing fruit and growing, that's, a, that's an image. We understand what it looks like when a plant is healthy, that is supposed to, to grow fruit or grow vegetables, and, and we know what it, it means for a healthy plant to bear good fruit. We get that. But what does it look like in a person? It should be so as evident as it is to be able to tell the difference between a good apple and a rotten apple. It should be that evident. But we can uh, allow uh, spiritual distortions to come in and, and, and uh, corrupt the lenses of our hearts so that we think what is kind of rotten is good because that is what the evil one desires to do among us and corrupt the light of the gospel into darkness. So let's be really clear about what it means to, to live a life worthy, to, to bear fruit and to grow in knowledge, verse, verses 11 and 12, give us a key. So, Paul prayed that there would be strength to have patience, in verse 12, and joy. Patience and joy. Is there anything that is difficult about understanding those two character qualities? Is it hard to understand what patience looks like? If we can think of a good apple as opposed to a rotten apple, good fruit and bad fruit, when we think of patience, is it hard to differentiate between someone who has patience and someone who doesn't have patience? It's pretty clear, right? So if we're understanding the fullness of the knowledge of God's will, what his desire is for us, for our life to be filled with those things that cause us to flourish as his people, that characterize uh, us as being a people of grace and peace, patience is one of those characteristics. If we're not having patience, we're not being filled with the knowledge of God's will. We're not exhibiting grace and peace. Joy. Verse 12, giving joyful thanks. Again, if we can tell the difference between a good apple and a bad apple, and if it's pretty evident, can we do the same with joy? Can you tell the difference between joy and being a sourpuss? I think we can, right? Just like patient, you tell the difference between someone who is patient and someone who is impatient, it's obvious, same with joy. Joy is a characteristic of God's people. When Paul prays that the kingdom of light would flourish among God's people and overcome the dominion of darkness, there may be a lot of things here that we can try to get wishy-washy on and and, and try to corrupt uh, into and twist into the wrong meaning. meaning. We, can, we can use wisdom as a, a character quality and say, look, it's talking about wisdom, and we can kind of weaponize that and use that to say, well, uh, I know more about the Bible than these people, therefore I'm better than them. God never wanted us 
to, to use wisdom in that context, but we can do it. Knowledge, the same thing. Uh, bearing fruit, we can make cause our own uh, definitions to be placed on that to make us look better than other people. But these character qualities of patience and joy, those are harder. Those are much harder to distort. And that's why they're here. And so Paul prayed that God's people in the midst of the turmoils in the church and the, the, the false teaching that was getting people away from the gospel of Christ, he wanted them to focus, among other things, on these two areas that are so easy to distinguish from their opposite, patience and joy. And with all that's going on in the world, with the horrible news of what happened this past week in a school in Texas, and it never seems to get better, and these things happen over and over again, how can we be patient and joyful? Well, it's not to put our head in the sand and say that we don't need to really think about that and just put it from our head. No, it's not to say that at all. Those things need to be thought of and addressed in a certain way. But as God's people, as God's people, it's not our job to talk about the horrible people out there. It's our job to, to pray for God's kingdom right here. And that kingdom is exhibited when we are patient and joyful with one another and with those that we come into contact with. How can we do that? Because, verse 13, we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul prayed for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. He prayed for God's kingdom to rest upon the church in Colossae. He prayed that the kingdom would cause the, 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 the bickering about unimportant things to be pushed aside so they could focus on the truth of Jesus so that they would be patient and joyful with one another and overcome darkness with the light of God's Son. So as we kind of go about our business here as God's people and think about how we respond to the world. Let's be patient and joyful people who show the love of Christ rather than people that are attacking and telling uh, the world how bad they are operate from this platform that Paul gives us, a platform of grace and peace, and in that way cause the gospel of Christ not only to rest upon us, but to spread throughout the whole world in our day. Because let's face it, the whole world is hungry for grace and peace. We know it's possible through Jesus Christ. So let's pray together.
So, Father, we are humbled when we think about the 